the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Continuing with part five with Michael Poe from the AAPA, today we're going to talk about PA scope of practice and Medicare billing rules. Michael, let's talk about PA scope of practice and how that practice affects Medicare reimbursement. Medicare is pretty broad when it comes to PA practice and scope of practice. There are some 8,000 CPT codes, and I think PAs have access to almost everything that's within a scope of practice. There are two or three things out there that PAs can't do under Medicare, such as certifying the need for hospice care, for example, and being able to provide the first comprehensive visit in a skilled nursing facility. There are three or four things of that nature that still need fixing. But for the most part, Medicare is pretty broad in terms of giving access to PAs to all the CPP codes and also being clear about the fact that there is no restriction on the high level of codes that PAs can bill. Some of the old thinking was that, well, PAs couldn't bill a 99215 in the office setting. It's the highest level established patient office visit. Medicare has busted that myth all apart and said that is not true. If the documentation and the care provided meets that code level, then the PA can bill it. Also, when you look at the area of mental health, for example, we still struggle with certain mental health and carve-out behavioral health companies in terms of their inclusion of PAs. Medicare allows PAs to provide every level of mental and behavioral health care that the system allows and allows them to be reimbursed for it. So in some ways, Medicare is ahead of the curve in terms of allowance and authorization of PAs to provide care, even though they have a lot of regulations surrounding that. So in many cases, Medicare is kind of the, bell, the standard in the bellwether for good quality care and scope of practice. And we often use Medicare as an example to pull other commercial payers along. So if we talk about collaboration and supervision of PAs that differs between states, does Medicare defer to state rules for that? How is that decided? Yeah, this is an interesting provision. And uh, as most people know, back in the day, the most common term to describe the relationship between a PA and a physician was that of supervision. Because that was so misunderstood, I mean, some people thought that meant the doc had to sign off on every chart or had to be with the PA when they provided care. We realized that that was a misnomer and highly misunderstood. And so throughout the years, state law, PA state chapters have changed their state law to something other than supervision. Most of the time that change goes to collaboration. In Michigan, it's participating physician. And in certain states, of which there are about six, the actual tether or the relationship between a single physician and a PA has been broken altogether. In those states, there isn't a requirement for a PA to be associated with a physician. Sometimes they require a certain number of hours of practice and experience before that occurs, but we are getting much more advanced in terms of the ability of PAs to be autonomous healthcare providers. That doesn't mean that PAs aren't still wedded to the team approach to healthcare, because we do think that it takes a team to provide care and get the best outcomes for patients. But when those states started to change from supervision to some other term, we went to Medicare to say, hey, look, we want to make sure that Medicare reimbursement isn't jeopardized when a state goes from supervision to collaboration or to some other method. And we were able to convince with a fair amount of advocacy work. And the Medicare changed its policy to say that whatever rule is in place that describes the relationship between a PA and a physician or the lack of a relationship we're going to allow that to meet our standard of supervision. So whatever term the state might use, whatever state law change a PA gets in place, 
that's going to be accepted by Medicare and that's going to be appropriate in terms of maintaining appropriate billing. And so as these changes occur, we wanted to make sure we had maximum flexibility with the Medicare program and didn't disenfranchise any state or any PAs who might have switched to a different term other than supervision. Supervision still remains in place for Medicare in terms of the statutory authority, but their regulatory policy has said that they will defer to different states and use that term of reference as meeting the guidelines for supervision. Michael, let's talk about Medicare billing rules, and there are quite a few of those. Before we get to the the big one that I've known about forever, can you talk about the billing rules for PAs for Medicare for an office visit? PAs have the ability to see and treat any patient, brand new, established patient with a new condition. If the PA is billing under his or her name and provider number, and that claim gets submitted to Medicare under that provision, then they can see and treat anything that comes into the office and get reimbursed at 85%. The bill goes out to Medicare at 100% with the same CPT code and the same payment amount request that you would for a physician. Once the Medicare carrier in that particular state sees the NPI number or what's called a PTAM number for a PA, they will do the reduction of 15% to make payment at 85%. It's really important to make sure that nobody from the billing department of your practice pre-discounts that to 85% because they think that's their responsibility. And then what's going to happen is that Medicare will then put another 15% discount on top of that. So 100% claim under the same CPT code that a physician would submit, Medicare takes care of the 15% reduction. Only if you're trying to do the billing under the physician, which Medicare allows under the provision called Incident 2, are there enhanced requirements. And that's when we get into the area whereby The physician must see the patient on the first visit to the practice in order to establish a plan of care. After that, when the patient comes back for follow-up care for that particular medical problem, a PA or an NP can provide the full level of care upon follow-up visit and build that service under the name of the physician, thereby getting 100% reimbursement as opposed to 85% had that claim been submitted under the name and NPI number of the PA. But Medicare is fairly strict in terms of its additional provisions that have to be put in place in order to use that type of billing. And what it means is that it has to be an established patient that's already been treated by the physician. The doc has to devise a plan of care, and that has to be followed by the PA. Also, if you're trying to bill incident two, Medicare requires that a physician be on site in the suite of offices when the PA provides care. Important components of that are that Medicare doesn't require the physician to have any interaction with the PA or the patient when the PA is providing follow-up care, but simply must be available somewhere in the office suite should there be some need for that physician involvement. Also, Medicare makes a distinction. The physician who treated the patient initially to establish the care plan need not be the same physician who's on site when the patient comes back two, three, four weeks later for follow-up care. What's important is that the bill be submitted under the name of the physician who is physically on site in the practice when the PA is delivering that follow-up care. So I think you have to understand all of those things Michael just went through to bill incident to to get that extra 15%. And I think the advantage to that is that you get more money, but there are a lot of disadvantages to incident to billing as well. Michael, what would those be? Getting in trouble with Medicare? Well, one of the problems is that oftentimes the billing and coding folks are not necessarily on the same page as the healthcare providers, and there's a lot of room for error, mistake, or confusion. 
Also, you have a situation in which you've been treating a patient for one condition, and you think they're coming back for follow-up for that provision, for that level of care, for that care plan. And you'll halfway through the visit, the patient says, oh, by the way, I've got this other problem that's really been bothering me. Well, at that point, you have a dilemma because if you as the PA are going to treat that new problem or new condition, that's going to be paid out at 85%. And what happens oftentimes or what used to happen was that the PA would then try to go grab the physician to say, hey, doc, I've got a new problem here. Unless you see this, we're not going to be able to build incident two. Well, if you're trying to grab a doc out of an exam room where he or she is with another patient, or you're taking that physician's time just to establish incident two when it isn't really needed for clinical purposes, the PA is perfectly capable of providing that care. What I believe is that if you don't bill incident two and don't try to get the doc involved in that, and everybody sees patients as efficiently as possible, by getting in one or two more visits per day, you're going to easily wipe out that 15% differential on the Medicare patients that got seen by the PA as opposed to the physician. And you're also going to create better workflow and patient flow for the patient, frankly, because they're not going to have to wait around for a doctor to jump into that room or jump into the other room to try to establish a new patient visit. Everybody's going to be seeing patients more efficiently, and that's going to probably allow for a greater volume of patient visits in a given day. So what we're showing in many practices is that you can be more effective and generate more revenue and see a greater volume of patients if you're not jumping through the hoops of incident two, and you're also protecting yourself from not being caught up in fraud and abuse concerns if somebody got it wrong or wasn't in the right place at the right time for that care to be provided. And the last thing I'll say about that is that one of the concerns we have with incident two is that it hides the PA. In other words, when I look at a billing form at the end of the month, I see incident two visits, I see physician, 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 and no real indication that a PA was actually the provider of care. So when it comes to the end of the month or end of the year, when I'm trying to figure out who had value in my practice, and I don't see the PA's name as frequently as I think I should have, it's not that the PA wasn't providing good level care. Doesn't mean that there wasn't a high volume of care being delivered by the PA. It just means that it got overcome and subsumed into this position, incident to bill, and it looks like the doc did the care when in fact that should be attributed to the PA. So those are some of the concerns I have about the entire realm of incident to billing. Yeah, is it really worth that 15%? I mean, get credit for what you're doing and, you know, see a couple of extra patients. I don't know. It just seems like this thing has been around since I became a PA forever ago. And there's always questions about it. So Yeah, Sam, when I was younger, I kind of said that incident two is going to be the most confusing billing mechanism. And it's probably going to be that way until I get ready to retire. Well, truer words were never said. No kidding. I agree completely. Michael, what about hospital billing? Can you tell us there was an interesting thing I wasn't aware of, the split shared visit billing, what that means for PAs and the requirements for that? Well, the key is that just like in the office, the PA can see any patient that's within their scope of practice under state law and within the hospital's bylaws. They can see and treat that patient without physician involvement and bill and be reimbursed for it. Submit the claim under their name and MPI number, and that's a done deal. However, much like the office setting, there is a provision that allows both a PA and a physician to provide care to the same patient on the same calendar day. And using something called the split shared billing mechanism, the combined work of both the PA and the physician can be put together and billed all under the name of the physician if, again, the more specific rules of split shared visit billing are followed. So what's really important about this is that this provision can only be used when care is provided by the doc and the PA on the same calendar day. 
some people get confused and think that it can be within the same 24 hour period of time and stretch from one calendar date to another. That's not true. The involvement of both health professionals must occur on the same calendar day. And the other issue is that there must be common employment between the PA and the physician if they're going to share this visit. In other words, both have to be employed by the hospital or both have to be employed by a group practice. You cannot use split shared visit billing with a hospital employed PA and a private physician who's in the community, even though they might be both working on the same patient that day, there isn't common employment, so split shared visit bill isn't a possibility. And perhaps the most important component of this is what's called the substantive portion of care. Back when split shared visit billing first started, Medicare allowed for a physician to provide a minimal level of care, and it was really kind of undefined. So in other words, if a PA provided 25 minutes of care to a hospitalized patient, and the physician came in and provided three minutes of care by listening to heart and lungs, that was allowable for a combined split shared visit bill. Medicare in recent years has said, this doesn't quite work for us because that is not enough engagement by the physician in order for us to pay this at a higher rate because in fact, it was a PA who did the vast majority of care. So Medicare put in certain standards about what level of engagement the physician has to have clinically in order to be able to bill this under his or her name as a split shared visit bill. And at the present time, the physician has to either spend more time with that patient than did the PA, or the physician must complete one component of care, either the history, the exam, or the medical decision-making. And as long as the physician provides one complete component of care or spends more than 50.1% of the time with the patient in terms of total time, then that service can be billed out under the physician's name at 100% reimbursement. There's been a lot of confusion about this over the past two or three years because Medicare has talked about changing the way split shared visit billing works. And they have proposed that this go to a time-based only billing mechanism. That is, it wouldn't be about history exam or medical decision-making, but it would only be time-based. And we have been arguing against that possibility or that policy change, even though Medicare has been proposing it in some of its regulatory rules. And I think some people are confused as to where we stand at this point, because in at least two occasions, Medicare has put it in a proposed rule, the medical community has argued against it, and they pulled it back. And so this back and forth nature of how the policy seems to be generating itself is causing a great deal of confusion. But what I described in terms of the physician providing one component of history exam or medical decision making, or more than 50.1% of the time, is the current rule of the day. And that's gonna be the rule throughout all of 2024. Our hope is to dissuade Medicare from ever talking about total time being adjudicated for this particular billing mechanism. We won't find that out until some future rules. Right. Substantive portion leaves uh, a lot to think about that could mean a lot of anything. So for our hospital-based employees, important information for you. Listeners, please tune in again next week when we continue our discussion with Michael Poe. We'll be talking about modifiers, the MedPAC, 99024 postdoc coding, and demonstrating PA value. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. Also, if you're a non-member and you're interested in our CME content, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual content.